passage we're looking at is verses 7 through 10, but I'll go ahead and begin reading in verse 1. And and, uh, so... 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and and again, primarily focusing on verse 7 through 10. Hear God's word as we look at it together. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations and thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a poet that wrote, God is in the heavens, all is all right in the world. When we hear those words, we can easily wonder if he's looking at the same world we are. With illnesses, pains, tears, and all sorts of evil. And God is truly in heaven, and he is on his throne. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, for first time to to bear our sorrows and griefs and to redeem us from sin and even Adam's guilt. And, And yet, till Jesus returns, until he brings the new heavens and the new earth, all is not right in this fallen and often troubling world. And so much will uncomfortably remind us in many ways that this world is not our home. Years ago, many people, including myself and our whole seminary, prayed for a girl from Covenant College. She had disappeared, and no one knew where she was. Later, her body was found with others killed by a mass murderer. Years later, I got the opportunity to, to preach to and, and talk to her parents at a church in our denomination. And, and, and any mention of a child or anything even, even loosely associated with having a daughter, they would break down into tears. And I'm sure... These many years later, nothing has changed. All will not be right for them them on this side 
of eternity. And we look at our lives and, and there are many afflictions and, and unexpected burdens and pains and broken relationships, financial woes, trials and terrors. And, and Job rightly expresses that as we live this life, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Paul and Barnabas understood what the church and what they themselves were facing because they went around to the churches that they had established and they encouraged them and strengthened them with these words, strengthened the souls of God's people, warning them, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And so it's reminding us, glory is yet held out for us. The glory of heaven, the glory of, of being in God's presence with joys forevermore. But we have to wait for it. For now, there will often be heart-wrenching, overwhelming trials, persecutions for the faith, difficulties in marriages, rebellious children, more bills than money at the end of the, the month, job troubles, traumas, even our body will be affected by the fall with handicaps and sicknesses and, and, and incurable illnesses. And, and so too the mind is fallen uh, e even with mental illnesses and diseases such as Alzheimer's and there are many others. Then there are people who bear the wounds of the loss of a loved one or a friend to the last enemy of death. All these and more are very real and very painful troubles which affect our mind and body and even our soul. And so Paul in today's text is encouraging us to, to understand and put all of these in perspective. To know where trials come from for they have a purpose in God's sovereign hand and to know God's sufficient grace in our trials. Today's text comes after Paul is, I don't know if you caught that, Paul is humbly speaking of himself. And he won't even use his own name. He, he speaks about somehow either in the body or, or in a vision being taken to the third heaven. And you think about, okay, the sky is the first heaven, and the second heaven then would be outer space. And, and while the third heaven is, is what we cannot see from here, no matter how many telescopes we, we develop and, and send outer space. Because the third heaven is where the throne of the triune God is. It's paradise. It, it, it's what Jesus promised the one thief on the cross where He told Him, today you'll be with Me in paradise. That's the third heaven. And I know we live in a society where people have claimed to, to go to heaven and, and they go on TV shows and write books declaring what I've done, what I've seen. And yet notice, Paul sets the humble example. He even said he saw things he's not allowed to describe. And 14 years after that, he is talking about this to set the context for his painful trial. Verse 7 tells us, 
Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. And this brings us to the first point that we need to know where trials come from because they have a purpose in God's sovereign and good hand. Paul describes this problem as a thorn. In fact, that Greek word can even be a plank in the flesh. You kids know what it means to get a thorn or a sliver in your finger. We adults know too. It hurts. It, it preoccupies us. It, it debilitates us even until we get it out. And, and with Paul, we're, we're never told what this is. And, and, and we can look at different passages in the Scripture and, and, and wonder, well, was this an emotional affliction because of, of what we call a thorn in the side, meaning a person such as Alexander the coppersmith, which, which Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 4.14, who, who did Paul, he says, a great deal of harm. Or was this from one of Paul's painful experiences? 2 Corinthians 11 shows a long list of things Paul suffered. He was beaten three times within what we'd call maybe an inch of his life. He had stones heaped on him. They, they were trying to kill him. He was shipwrecked and he faced so many other things. And so was this maybe the, the mental anguish like PTSD or, or was, this effects, uh, uh, was this from the effects of all those things? Arthritis, maybe painful arthritis, migraines, or, or something else from so many different injuries. We can look at other passages in the Scripture, and we can ask, uh, even as Romans 7 lays out, because Paul is speaking of his life as, as a Christian there, and, and was this maybe some sort of battle with indwelling sin, which, which the Lord used to keep him humble, of which Paul lays out Jesus alone could deliver him from this body of death. Or we can go to other places. Galatians 4.14 mentions that, that many in the church were willing literally to, if they could, to pluck out their eye and, and give it to Paul because it's pretty clear he was going blind. The interesting thing is we really don't know what the thorn that Paul is describing is here. Which caused so much suffering. And to be honest, that's good. For the thorn in the flesh is general enough to fit each of the trials we face. Or the periods of suffering for each different stage of life we go through. And the reason that's important, because I know it's so tempting to think that being a Christian, a follower of Christ, will somehow insulate us, that, that it somehow will make everything in life a little bit easier. Yet God the Holy Spirit reminds us through the psalmist that many are the afflictions of the righteous. And even that declaration is hard for us. Because often in trials and the suffering, you know, our eyes are open to see our weakness, our failures, to see how clearly, how far we are from the righteousness. That we're called to have apart from Christ. 
And so that's written to remind us God knows, though, what you and even I are going through. And despite how clearly we see our failures in Christ, because Paul talks about being in Christ even in this passage over and over, in Christ is our righteousness, our perfect standing before God. And Paul's focus in this text is on, first of all, where this trial comes from. He, he touches really on the great mystery of God's sovereignty, implying God's sovereign hand is behind what he was facing. For he writes, a messenger of Satan, whether this was Satan, whether this is, is one of the other third of the fallen angels that, that follows Satan, we don't know. And he says he was sent to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. In fact, that word for buffet is the same word that is used of Christ's sufferings, of Christ being beaten and pummeled by fish's fists. But this statement, a messenger Satan was sent to buffet me, is really calling our mind back to an Old Testament event where after Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, he, as one of other fallen angels, along with God's angels, appear before the triune God's throne to give an account. And that reminds us, too, that something we need to keep in mind, that, that Satan is not an equal to the triune God, because Satan is just a mere creature having to give an account to God. But in Job 1.8, God actually is the one who focuses Satan's attention on Job for all the trials that he'll face to be tested. This teaches us far beyond our understanding that the temptations of Satan desired to bring Paul down and undermine his effectiveness, even to destroy him. And, and yet, in this passage, we're reminded that that thorn is sovereignly used by God in His wisdom and omnipotent power. He's turning even that painful thorn, that painful situation in Paul's life to his good. And God will do the same for your life and mine. That's, that's why even, in fact, in the Greek, it's, it's being used as the perfect uh, tense because it's reminding us this applies even to your life and mine, uh, your struggles and mine in this life. And the scripture reminds us that God is working through all these things, and, and yet, to be honest, we can struggle so much to understand or see it. And yet, Scripture often reminds us, you know, as, as Joseph was all, almost murdered by his brothers, then thrown into a pit, and then sold into slavery, and, and then as uh, he, 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 you know, things seemed to be working up, and he was in Potiphar's house, then he was falsely accused, and then falsely imprisoned. And as he faced where the trials somewhat were fitting together, and he was starting to see more clearly what God was doing, he would later tell his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people and alive. Paul brings up the good in his very painful trial that as a mature Christian, God's purpose was to keep Paul from pride. 
For while God hates all sin, pride is one of the seven abominations before the Lord, as Proverbs 6 warns us about. Pride is selfishness, it's conceit, it's arrogance, it's self-glorifying, it's uh, even a phrase which is popular today called self-esteem. But what do we have that we have not received? So why do we boast of it? Pride was Satan's first sin. And, and you think about his temptation towards Adam and Eve was also pride. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. How did that turn out? Well, we know how it turned out because of our own suffering and sin. Satan lied and Adam fell, causing the misery we face in this world, in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds. And this is why God warns. Pride comes before, pride goes before destruction. And Paul himself later warns Timothy, but know this, that in the last day perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal despisers of good, Traitors, headstrong, haughty, which is also part of pride again. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's Paul. He, he knows Satan is at work, but he knows also God is ruling and overruling in the trial that he is facing. Even to keep Paul from potential sin. He's using the trial in fulfillment of the Lord's Prayer, which we can often use, of lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's exactly what God was doing in Paul's life, keeping him from pride. And I want to pause here to, to take a moment to think about some real, uh, a reality here because whatever trial we or someone else is facing in life, there's often times that we would like to put our finger on it. And Paul is, in part, able to do that here. You know, it seems like we maybe would be able to bear up under our suffering a little better if we understood, you know, this is why I'm facing and, and why I'm facing what I'm facing. And while we're made privy to Paul's suffering, and we're made privy even to the reasons for Job's sufferings. Job and his friends never find out the reason for the wave upon wave of trials on this side of eternity. And to be honest, most often, more than not, you and I will never really be able to put our finger on why the suffering and pain in our own lives now, Scripture gives us some hints, and, and even as we see here with Paul, it gives us some reasons for hardship, and I'm not going to list all of them, but sometimes trials come into our lives because God chastens those He loves. In other words, sometimes trials are discipline, calling us to repentance and to look to our Savior while teaching us to hate sin. And the purpose is not to destroy us, as Hebrews tells us, or adds, it's for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness. 
Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In other words, God will so work to make his elect more and more be conformed to the image of his righteous son. So trials in God's loving hand can be used to bring holiness into our life, to reflect Christ as he prepares us for heaven so we can see him. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Because uh, as his children, God, as a loving heavenly father, won't let us commit the same sins over and over. Later, Paul, writing from prison, will bring up another reason for his trials. For his imprisonment, he'll state, was to advance the gospel. So others, including those of Nero's own household, would be brought to trust God. And hear the forgiveness of God in Christ, His Son, and be brought to saving faith. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us our, our suffering is a call uh, for us to trust God and not the idols of life. And you think about the expression, you know, the rug was pulled out from me. Well, it kind of should make us click and say, you know, that means I'm standing in the wrong thing. And we forget that sometimes until trials come. 2 Corinthians 4.17 uh, tells us another thing that God can be doing, using our suffering to work in us a great reward in heaven for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And while there's a lot of other reasons in Scripture for our trials, including uh, God strengthening, strengthening us to be able to comfort those who, who are in need of comfort, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. There's one more thing I want to call attention to, and that is that our suffering often is a God-given opportunity to turn our mind and think more on Christ's righteousness and His suffering for our salvation. Paul writes that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. And again, there's more reasons in Scripture But we should pause again because we don't know why it seems that some are spared from trials while others are not. And we have to be very careful, particularly uh, being loving with fellow Christians. Looking, thinking sometimes, as maybe we're tempted to do, saying, you know, I I know why you're suffering. Job's friends thought, you know, Job, somehow you really blew it along the way. You really sinned to face all that you're facing. But remember how that ends. In the end, God rebuked Job's friends. And tell them they need Job to intercede for them, just like we need Christ to intercede for us. Even pastors have fallen into this trap. You go back and you look at the Puritan, uh, Cotton Mather. He once preached a sermon about the excruciating suffering in the city of Boston, and he named three people from the pulpit. He didn't know. And we need to be careful, too. For it is God's glory to conceal a matter, and so often we really don't know. All we can do is examine our own heart to see what fits with our trials. And since God's understanding and His purposes are infinite, He will actually have far more reasons than we will understand for why we go through 
the things that we do on this side of eternity. What we're called to do is not try to answer the why, but pray, believe His promises, and trust that nothing can separate us from His love. And that the trials we face, no matter how difficult, are being worked together for our eternal good as those who've been brought to love Him. Well, lastly, we must know that God's sufficient grace in our trials, there is a great error in the church, which can come into our own hearts as well. It's the imagination, you know, if, if only I have enough faith, or only if you have enough faith, you will be cured from your disease. You'll be protected from trials. Look down at verse 8. It tells us something very different. Because this is the Apostle Paul. He's a mature Christian. And it's pretty hard to make the argument our faith could be better than his. Not that he's exalted in his own righteousness. Far be it from that because he's a sinner who rested in Christ's righteousness alone as we must do. But Paul writes in verse 8 concerning the thing I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. It's so painful. It's so debilitating. Paul prayed, and we should understand most likely, with with an agonizing heart and a sense of frustration three different, no doubt, extended times. And here was God's answer. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Francis Schaeffer said something one time that that it's so tempting that being a Christian, uh, to think that being a Christian will or should exempt us from trials and let us die peacefully in our sleep. It'd be nice, but that rarely happens. And what this passage teaches us is that in our trials, When our utter weakness is is revealed to us, to our own hearts, by the physical or the spiritual or the mental affliction, God is using Paul, an example for you and me, giving that that promise, giving a promise that that He will demonstrate His power even in us, in our pain, even in our brokenness. Not with a little sprinkling of grace, leaving us beggars, but with all sufficient grace to keep us putting one foot in front of the other, if nothing else. This is about God's keeping power in your life and mine. His sufficient grace at work in your life and mine. Just as we ask in the Lord's Prayer for our daily bread, we are getting the grace we need day by day. For when we're brought low with troubles on every side, we might imagine most what? We need a miracle. <laughs> Yet God is teaching us here that what we need is for His gracious strengthening hand and His sufficient forgiveness. It means the weaker Paul or, or we are, Seeing our complete dependence on the Lord, the stronger the power of Christ is is gloriously displaying itself. And one of the struggles when our hearts are overwhelmed is 
in our, res- or our resources and trials, we, we quickly see, are far expended. However, God's resources will never run out. This is why we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And again, this doesn't mean that the pain goes away as if grace was some form of divine anesthesia. It means God props us up. He holds sovereignly, holds us in His hollow protective care. He sustains us when we have no strength. And when we're driven into the dust, seeing our weakness, our eyes are open to the reality of our life, actually. We're forced to come to terms with with the fact that we have no strength. Paul was being told the thorn will not be pulled back even a little bit. The blow will not be softened. Yet the sufficient grace of God to meet Paul's needs is the reason he was enabled to praise God and be content even in his agony. He writes as he continues in verse 9, Therefore most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest in me. Paul's boasting not about seeing heaven, but about seeing his weakness so that others and he himself even could see the glory of God's gracious hand at work in his life. And so he says, Therefore I take pleasures in infirmities, as illnesses, sicknesses, right? In, in reproaches, That's verbal attacks. You ever had somebody criticize you? Or you think unjustly? The more painful ones is when it's just. (laughs) In needs, it could be physical, it could be spiritual. In persecutions, again, that's even more sinful men attacking us for the faith. In in distresses, you know, kind of broader term for, for everything that could trouble us. And he says, for Christ's sake, as we serve the Lord. Really, this list covers every type of trial we can face. And then Paul adds, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It seems kind of like a contradiction, doesn't it? But Paul's making the point that, that Paul, even when our, or, or for us, when our weakness is overwhelming and the trials with intense suffering, that that actually is the best backdrop for God's strength and glorious grace to shine through. You think about it. If Paul got the credit with this issue or for overcoming it or bearing through it, people would not see him correctly. They might be tempted to think he's so wise and so strong, which would be wrong. And if Paul got the credit, then we would not see the glory of God's sustaining grace in his afflicted people. That's true for Paul. That's true for you and I as well. For our all-sufficient God gives us strength, even life and breath to begin with. Calvin said it this way, God's strength is made perfect only when it shines out clearly enough to win the praise it's due. In other words, win praise for God. And the truth of the matter is God will bring things into our lives where we're made to realize you know, any control of the situation is an utter illusion, on our part at least. Because suffering often strips away the scales of our eyes to see what's true. We are weak, which draws us to, to prize and praise God's gracious strength in our life. 
This is why Job, when he lost seven sons and three daughters and lost all of his possession, seeing his weakness, he was able to say, even if the Lord slay me, I will praise him. That's hard. But it's done with our eyes looking to our triune God. And like with Paul, God will use us in his kingdom and for his gracious and glorious purposes when we know our complete dependence on him. In fact, one of the things we should do in the Heidelberg Catechism lays this out. We should pray, actually, what question 127 talks about. You know, you think about the phrase, lead us not to temptation, and the Catechism unpacks from that, that reminding us, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment, and besides our deadly enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh assail us without ceasing, this is what we should be praying. Be pleased to preserve and strengthen us by thy Holy Spirit that we may make a firm stand against them and not be overcome in this spiritual warfare till finally complete victory is ours. And that is when Christ brings us to himself or he returns, whichever happens first. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, like it or not, suffering is a reality of this life, particularly as Christians. For those trials wean us from this life. They remind us we are strangers and aliens here as we look to heaven. Even re- they, they even reveal our need to follow God's word no matter what the world says. And more importantly, while our righteous Lord and Savior bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, conquering our sin and death on the cross, His salvation does not exempt us from trials and afflictions. Jesus said, you will have tribulation. That's the norm, not the exception. But then Jesus added, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And yet we will not see that overcoming with our own eyes till glory, till Christ returns. For now all we can know is our triune God is indeed in heaven. And He is ruling and overruling And we need to cling to His promises even as we suffer. For what we face is not unusual. Go through history. I'm not going to go in order, but but look at men like C.H. Spurgeon who preached even to 6,000 people every week and God sustained him through agonies of gout. His wife Susanna was an invalid and could not help. And, and add to this that he often faced such dark depression immobilizing him in bed for weeks on end. John Calvin, he lost a son, an infant son. And then he lost a, a young daughter. And then he lost his wife. He had pleurisy, kidney stones, hemorrhoids, arthritis. He struggled with tuberculosis. He preached coughing blood. And then go down, you can look at another uh, person around the same time. Martin Luther suffered from severe constipation, vertigo, tinnitus, hemorrhoids, chest pain, colic, a prolapsed intestine, and ulcerating legs. Often he was so overwhelmed by facing such deep, dark depression. Once his wife dressed even as a mourner, in black. And when Luther asked her who, went, you know, who died, she said, God must have, by the way, you're acting. And we can act that way too. Luther got the point. God is still on his throne. How about Johnny Erickson Tata? Maybe many of you hopefully know of this very godly woman who is now around 74, but 
She's been in prison in a wheelchair since she was 16 because of being paralyzed jumping into a lake. And she wrote, while others told her this was not God's plan, she said, I know differently. It was all planned long ago, and God brought it about in His perfect faithfulness. And because He allowed it and permitted it, because He has walked with me through every moment of it, His plan has been marvelous for Johnny Erickson Tata. I am content. Paul shows us his trial was there to keep him from potential pride and make him content to learn God's grace is sufficient even in our trials. Oh, that we would know that while everything is not all right on this, in this fallen world till Christ returns to set everything right, we do need to know, as Paul shows us here, we need to know where trials come from for they have a purpose. God is at work for His good purposes, and we need to know God's sufficient grace in our troubles. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Most gracious and sovereign Heavenly Father, we come before You, and we have to confess we are so often spent when assailed by troubles in this life. And we are reminded this often can be a valley, this life can be a valley of tears. But help us to see that you are at work to make us more holy and, and more to reflect your Son and to draw us closer to you who gives us power in our weakness through our Lord and Savior who humbled himself to powerfully save us, to give us eternal life by your grace. And, and Lord, help us to look forward to that and we pray, even as we face trials, whether, whether we are facing them now or for those who yet uh, are in the light and, and yet will have to remember this for times of darkness, we pray you would humble us, that you would work in us to remove every last thread of pride, self-esteem, self-sufficiency, and even arrogancy, which causes us to stand against your word and think we know better than what you say. Sustain us, Lord, and make us to see, as you promise here, that your grace and strength will be sufficient as it works in and through us. Calm our hearts, give us contented gladness, even joy. Open our eyes to see your hand at work so that as Satan attacks, we would be sure that you are overruling it and you are bringing about your good purposes so that not one trial, not one heartache will ever be wasted in your sovereign hand, but will accomplish the purpose for which you have ordained, particularly our sanctification. And we pray this with hope through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.